Hello, and you are most welcome to episode 176 of the Game Pit podcast, a podcast about modern tabletop gaming. My name's Ronan, and I am your only host for this episode. Apologies for all the Sean fans out there. He'll be back next time round when we're going to count down 90 to 81 from our top 100. It's just me this time, and I'm here to give you a frontline report which is our episodes in which we talk about when we've been away somewhere and played lots of games on the weekend at some event or other. And this one is for LobsterCon 22. Those of you who have been listening for a while will know, will be well aware that I have been a member of London on board for many, many years. And London was a huge gaming group in London. And twice a year for many years, we have been heading down to the south coast of England to Eastbourne to take over a hotel. There's been various hotels the Cumberland Hotel at the moment, and we turn up and we take the whole place over and we play games for a number of days. And firstly, thank you very much to Alex and Chris for all your hard work organising this this time round. I very well know <laughs> what a headache it is, and uh, it's a thankless task. Well, it's, you get lots of thanks, but it's a stressful task. So um, thank you very much. We had an absolutely amazing time this time round. The way it went this way for myself and Rachel, we headed down, is that I was back to a night shift on the Monday, which was the sort of day the con was finishing, if you like, off on the Monday morning. So we switched it round and we headed down to the South Coast on Thursday to have a walk around some chalk cliffs and beaches and have a look around the beautiful area of the Sussex, the Sussex Downs. That's not easy to say. And then we were headed back to our inn in the village. And we played a couple of two-player games, and that's where I'm going to kick off. And I'm literally just going to run through all the games that I played over the next four days for you. Note that there's not hundreds and hundreds, because as much as Eastbourne is there about gaming, it is also probably more so about seeing friends, people that I've known for well over 10 years, people you don't see other than Eastbourne. I certainly don't. I very, very rarely go to London board anymore, changes of jobs and what have you. And it's just brilliant to see people and hang out and reconnect and realise this is why we've been friends for so long because we have such a good time together. So there was visits off to restaurants and drinks and hanging out, but there is plenty of games. I'm going to be here for a while. So settle in and we'll kick off. And the first game we played is Radlands, which is a two-player post-apocalyptic sort of a combatty game in which you're trying to take out each other's camps. Uh, we played it in the inn, we set up, we ordered some dinner, we, and then we attracted a lot of attention from people, which is good. It was good attention. The uh, barmaid was over chatting away to us and uh, saying that she loves traditional games and she was looking for other games to get into. In terms of the game itself, I'm not going to say too much because I'm going to review this in episode 178. It was definitely worthy for me to get my teeth into it. Positive start. It's got very varied with cards and things can almost come out of the blue and hit you. So I need to go through it a lot to find whether the balancing point is correct and this is a fantastic game or is it a bit too mental. So we're going to talk about that more in a couple of episodes time. The second game we got out and we played a couple of times was Cryptid Urban Legends from Osprey. It's a new two-player only game. Obviously, they've put the Cryptid name on it. And I think I can summarise this by calling it a horrific cash grab. It's awful. I rated it a one on BGG and then I went back and looked at the BGG rankings and I've grudgingly given it a two. I might go back and give it a one. It's not anything to do with Cryptid at all. 
you start with a very small grid of three cards and there are 12 cubes of three colors and all you ever do on your turn is you play a card from your hand to move the cubes from one side across to the other and when all the cubes have gone from one side across to the other in this grid of cards the cryptid alleged cryptid player is trying to point out a pattern or a number of cubes and if they've got that in multiple places they get to be present on the board if they haven't done that then they die or the scientist finds them or something and the board gets a big bigger the grid it gets up to seven cards and then it keeps getting reduced and new ones come out and reduced and new ones come out which is incredibly irritating because you, you keep changing the pattern up on the cryptid player it feels very hard to be the cryptid player it's very boring the way you move cubes is limited but not in a fun way I an absolute enigma how this got past any quality assurance a to be published and b the temerity to put the cryptid name on there is absolute lunacy. Well, cryptid, you've got a game that's doing well. And I actually saw cryptid being played this weekend. So clearly it's not disappeared and people are still interested in it. And I'm still actually finding people who are new fans of it saying, oh, I play cryptid. Oh, it's better than I expected. Blah, blah, blah. And then what are you doing? What are you doing? You're just shooting yourself in the foot by putting out this rubbish with that name on. Cryptid Urban Legends genuinely... Uh, absolutely terrible game i'm sorry if you were fooled into buying it luke Pryor. i tried to warn you don't buy it but you parted with your money already i've got to get rid of it quickly possibly before this comes out because word's going to spread and no one's going to want this and what a shocking job from osprey no 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 we had to cleanse the palette after that so we've got out ravens of three sashiri the two-player co-op game i've banged on about it you play it in a very, very limited communication, they only communicate through the cards, and one you're putting out a pattern, and the other one's trying to take cards out of the pattern to tell them what their secret row of cards is. And it's funny, and it's hard, and you'll be like, ooh, squealing as you play, and it's brilliant. And we finished off the night there with a couple of games of that and a couple of drinks, and we had a fantastic day. Oh, one thing did happen. We were standing underneath white chalk cliffs, down by the channel and an actual spitfire went right over flying low right over the top of us that was pretty amazing i tried to take a photo i put it on facebook and everyone tells me it looks like either a pigeon or a bug i don't, I don't know not a great photo but it happened and it was absolutely fantastic so there you go we moved on to friday we went up to see a sort of a, a bomber command memorial up on the cliffs again and made our way down into eastbourne and we got there and things were just starting off. We got there before 12, which was the official start time. But there was a few people hanging around. And I had specifically bought Mantis to bring to LobsterCon. It's a game from the Exploding Kittens people. It's about collecting sets of colored cards. There are seven colors of cards. And you have them in front of you or you score them. But they have to be in front of you before you can score them. And there's a shared deck in the middle. And the back of the card tells you it's going to be one of three colours. And you can see that. And from there, you decide whether you're going to try and steal cards from another player, looking at what colours they've got. I know they'd like to be one of these three. Or score for yourself doing the same thing. So if I've got yellow and red in front of me with loads of points and it's a yellow, red, blue card, I might take it to score. Because I, if I get the blue, I keep the card. If I get the yellow, red, I score all of them. You've only got to score 10 points. It's a very simple idea. It's interactive. It's screwy. You're stealing cards from each other. It was the sort of thing that I thought maybe going to a con might be loads of fun. So I played it 
right at the beginning, I played it later in the day, and then I decided this was not going to be one of those times where I've brought a game along, played it in the first day, and then I see people playing it for the rest of the weekend because it was fine, and there was a little bit of chat and laughter, which was good to, you know, get into the swing of chatting to people, but it wasn't putting up any trees. I think for very casual gaming down the pub or with younger gamers, because there's not a lot to understand there, it's going to be good in those situations as a game for gamers with simple rules that hooks you in and gives you a bit extra and you'll want to play it again and again. It didn't work. So Mantis, yeah, it's, it's a decent job. It's not amazing. Then it being the first day and the start and everyone being fresh, I thought we would crack out a bit of a challenge and we got a three-player game of Ark Nova in. Now, I'm sorry, but you're not going to get all my thoughts on Ark Nova this time either because Sean has pegged that for review in a couple of episodes' time. He's played it four or five times already. I've only played it twice now. I definitely have thoughts and I definitely don't want to put them down on tape, so to speak, without more plays. And now I'm going to leave that there. Other than to say, when we did this frontline report for Aircon, we're talking about the games that we saw being played a lot. Mark Cook, the fellow who runs Aircon, rightly pointed out to us that he was surprised that we hadn't mentioned Ark Nova getting played everywhere because that's what he saw. And thinking back, actually, yeah, Ark Nova was played, but even more so here at LobsterCon, Ark Nova got played plenty of times. There's loads of interest. It's broken the top 20 on BGG as a newer game, so you know it's going to get some interest. And is it worth that hype? Well, we'll give you our opinions fairly shortly. But maybe you're judging for yourself. I don't know. We'll see. It's certainly getting massively high ratings on BGG. We then had sort of a little bit of downtime while we're waiting to get a few people together to play the next big game. So we played sort of two shorter games in a row here. First one was myself and my friend Adam. It was just the two of us while other people were off getting drinks. And he said, have you got anything quick? And I said, you know, I play Circle the Wagons. And he certainly did. And I did. And that's great because we got it out, flipped over. It's 18 cards, three gold cards, a circle of cards. You're trying to score according to matching patterns. Each of the cards has got four areas on them and possibly some symbols. So you're trying to score by matching areas of the same colour together. But also the three goals that you flipped over will tell you another way you're going to score just for this game. It is very similar to Sprawlopolis, but it's competitive this time around. And... Adam slightly misunderstood one of the scoring cards, but I think he still beat me. So that goes to show how bad I am at that game. I was trying to be smart because when it's your turn, you can skip over cards and force the other player to take them. And he was happily taking them. I was giving him snowfields, which didn't cost you points if they were near cows. And he was trying to put cows on them. And I think he still beat me despite doing that. So I have to revise my circle of wagons. I almost called it strategy. Probably not strategy, but whatever it is, I have to revise it. Okay, that was cool. After that, we got a whole bunch of people together as they were milling around, waiting for games to finish and start again. And we played the first time, and it was played many, many times over the weekend, including much later this same night on the Friday. So Clover. I mentioned So Clover tons of times. It's the word game in which you're cluing things. Everyone gets to join in. Everyone guesses together. Is it a game or an activity, given you don't really score it? I don't really care. It's really funny. Straight away, as soon as we started playing, friend Nathan turned around to me and went, yeah, I'm buying this. Yeah. <laughs> and that reaction has come again and again. So Clover's fantastic. It worked again this time around. People enjoyed it. We had a good time. And uh, and it has got that nice thing of being completely baffled and going, what are you talking about? And then having to think through it and discovering a little about how 
other people's minds work. But only a little bit. You don't want to know too much, do you, about how other people think. Right. The game that myself and a few of my friends were waiting to do play was Magnate from Naylor Games, James Naylor. This wasn't my first game, but I played it a few times. It is a game which there's a grid of different tiles which represent a city, and on each of those tiles there are nine more spaces. And some of them come up for sale each round. And there's a set price for land, and there's a set price for buildings, but the price for land gets multiplied when you're able to build on it by, according to what's around it, you get plus or minus on your multiplier. And also in this, we played the advanced version now, Magnetics, it wasn't the first game, you get to attract tenants into businesses and the tenants that you attract them, the difficulty of attracting them and the amount of money they give you will affect other buildings around them. So the way Magnet comes in the box is it comes with a set of cards, which is a tutorial. And the tutorial is hellish and unnecessary because it's not that complicated a game. So maybe it's required for a mass market, but then I think if you're asking someone a mass market game to go through like a 70-card tutorial, I don't think it's the right approach. Put it that way. And it's there's a big, quite a big thing about don't open this rule book. There's no need to that. Just follow the tutorial. Don't touch the rule book. You won't need it. And a couple of cards in it says, right, go back to the rule book to refer, to refer to tutorial setup. And it's just a little thing that grates. And there's like yellow and black banners that says, don't do this, don't read the rule book. Read the rule book. If you get Magnate and you're going to play it, read the rule book. You are perfectly able to play it straight off the bat. I don't know who or what that was aimed at, the whole tutorial thing. Secondly, there's a basic game that you play. To go to the advanced game is a very simple change. Now, this I do understand more because there was a little bit to get your head around in Magnet when you're playing. But if you are listening to this, I would say, and you're going to play Magnet, just go to the advanced game. It doesn't add that much for gamers in terms of complexity, but in terms of the gameplay, it does add a bit. And it adds a bit of strategy. And you're trying to build certain types of building to attract certain types of tenants to then build something next to it that's going to get loads more tenants because the more tenants you get, the more tenants will go into other ones. So I'm not describing that very well. For example, I'm trying to think exactly how it works. For example, industrial ones want other industry around it or residential buildings that you build want uh, commercial for jobs and or retail so you, you can sort of attract, so there's four types of buildings you can build. There's, there's it's like lots of cities building games, residential, commercial, industrial, or retail. And they interact with each other. And certain types of tenants will make plots of land more valuable next to them. And like I say, but not all plots of land are for sale. So you kind of have to wait for them to come around. The big part of the game I haven't mentioned is that the prices increase and increase and increase as you speculate and invest in it. But at a certain point, you're causing a bubble and these cards will come out and you can kind of see the pattern of how they're coming out and they will cause a crash token to go down. On the round in which that crash token goes past zero, the whole game crashes. The price of everything that you multiply drops right down and then you have to sell everything off and most money wins. So there's a timing aspect as to we're building this up, we're building it up, we're building it up, it's going to crash. I say the first couple of times we played, that was interesting because it was sort of like, oh, when's it going to go? When's it going to go? And it leaped forward and then it would stall and it would go again. In this particular game, it was much more predictable. And it was like, it wasn't going, it wasn't going, it wasn't going. And then we got to a point where so many crash cards were coming out that it was inevitable. And only one person thought it was going to go the round before. So that that tension was taken out of it. But it's still a good game. And I enjoy it. And I think it's decent. The 
last problem with Magnate is, is that it's in a really big box. And it comes with 3D printed buildings, which are nice, but they take up a lot of space. And the game doesn't have enough for me to warrant having this huge box. And I know that might sound silly. And if you've got in this room and you don't carry games anymore, everyone comes to your house. But for me to bother carrying this around the place, it has to give me more than an hour and a half long good financial game, which we're having fun and we're investing and we're buying and we're selling. And it's pretty, you know... I understand why this was done because it was all these 3D printed buildings that attracted the Kickstarter, which got the game made in the first place. So without all that stuff, the game would never really have been made. But with it, it becomes undesirable. And if it could somehow have been made and in a much smaller box and presented almost less grandiosely, I think it would get more backers but maybe in a way that's not very supportive financially because that's not how a business works and it's a vicious circle and i appreciate that i can only say as the person with the game it's hard for me to justify keeping something that big when the gameplay isn't either it's like a campaign or it's usually memorable or it's a four-hour game and this might all be in my head it's like you're assigning value to space maybe i am but it was a comment that came up again and again and again when people were playing going, wow, that box is really big. Wow, there's loads of bits. Is it like a really big, huge game? And you're like, no, not really. Oh, that's a shame. So Magnate, it's a good game. I enjoyed it. I recommend you trying it and playing it, especially if you like those sort of speculation games. There's a lot of positive in there and definitely worth a play. Once Magnate finished, we went out. Had a good time, had some Thai food, had some cocktails, came back and played a bit of Soak Clover, went to bed and got up Saturday morning. And Saturday morning I was sitting down having my breakfast, nothing particularly planned for the day, very firmly. And there was five fellas there looking for a sick for Quartermaster General. I think someone wasn't available. And my hand shot in the air and went, yeah, that's me. I'm down for that. I love Quartermaster General. I haven't played it in quite a while, as with lots of multiplayer games. And in we went. I think everyone knew how to play. I'm pretty sure everyone had played before. There was a bit of a rules refresher, which was quite handy for me as well, just to get things in line. I was, oh, if you don't know Quartermaster General, it's a ideally six player. You can play there some people, but there's six nations in it. There's three axes, three allies. It is a map of the world broken into regions and each nation has their own deck of cards which can allow them to produce and fight with just two very simple units, land units or sea units. We didn't use any expansions or anything. And battles are straight up. You play a card and you take a piece off. The nations have got different events which they can break the rules. They've got different statuses they can put into play, which allows them to become more powerful. They have different responses, especially Japan, in which something happens, they can turn around and respond back. And you're trying to play your own nation to the best of your ability. There are certain control points on the board, which will give you points every turn. It's a very simple sort of Euro scoring. And you're trying to keep in touch with the other team and then obviously be ahead of them at the end of 20 rounds. If you lose lots of cards and you can't play cards because you're going to sort of force people to discard cards, you start losing points for your teams. There's a timing aspect because sometimes you want to throw cards away to try and get something done now because it's very important, knowing that you risk in the end getting hit with these economic warfare cards which will kill your deck and suddenly you're losing points for your team. You're fighting to get around the board to get to areas to score points you must defend your home base because there's both a supply mechanism in which your bits have to always be linked back to someone that can supply them. But also if you ever lose your home base, as Russia did this time, unfortunately, you can't score points for a little while. We lost, as the Allies, I said, I was USA, 
it wasn't because of Russia losing the base, it was because of they play better than us as the axis. Now, I started off and as probably expected, I headed west off the western shore and took Hawaii and built up a bit of a navy in the Pacific and got in a little bit of a bum fight with Japan, sort of trying to threaten me and me sort of holding firm. And I was kind of setting up to really put the squeeze on Japan. At the same time, UK came down and took India, took uh, Austria, took China, and were scoring loads of points and redeveloped their Asian and Australasian empire sort of thing, leaving just themselves stuck on the island I'm on right now, on Great Britain, without even a naval force around them. So rather than pursuing what I was doing with Japan, I kind of turned around and started trying to support the UK in Western Europe, where the Italian player was playing fantastically and scoring loads of points. And Italy and Germany were hugely putting the squeeze on Russia, hence them getting kicked out of their their capital. And then... Myself and the UK player wasted a lot of time, uh, in hindsight, I mean, obviously we thought we did the same thing, fighting over Western Europe when the German player had a card called Blitzkrieg, which kind of let them do two things at once. As soon as they attacked us in Western Europe and killed us, they jumped in with a tank, which you can't usually do. So for us, it was Britain attacks Western Europe to clear it out. I build into Western Europe. So that's two of our turns as a team. And then the German player can just kick us out and build in one turn for them. And we shouldn't have really got involved in that. I should have backed up the UK and, and put the naval thing and kept them safe a little bit and responded, but then probably should have either gone through the Mediterranean, attacked Italy, or gone back and started annoying Japan, who had started really expanding and doing really well. And they actually got all the way down to Australia, kicked Britain out and were scoring points from there. And they, they kicked them out of China as well. And in the end, basically, the Axis played a lot better than we did. And we ran out of cards and it was a handy win for them in the end. Overall, it was played in really good spirits. It was played quickly. There was plenty of chat between the team members and it was a ton of fun. It was a reminder why Quartermaster General is such a good game and why, while there's loads and loads of different versions of it around the system, that base game is where to start and possibly where to continue for quite a while. It does everything you could want from that system in the one box. The next game we played was Barrage, which is the water-flowing, heavier side of Euro. But actually, I say that. So three of us have played before, two of us not for a while, and then we talked Adam again. So I called Wagons Adam. Now he's Barrage Adam. And he hadn't played before. And now that I know the game relatively well, the teaching of it and the mechanisms actually are very simple. It's a simple worker placement and resource management game, which have a set of engineers and you put them on the shared board to take actions or you put them on your own board in order to build things, which has got an interesting thing. So when you build something, you put both that sort of a project <laughs> I'll try to make sense of and some resources on a time wheel and it turns and you've got to get that turn around till you get those resources back to reapply again and when I say that that sort of thing like if I build a dam that could be my one tile to build dams and it will start spinning around and I can't build another dam till it gets back to me and it doesn't spin through time through the game you have to do things to make it turn around either build more stuff or spend workers to just tick it around we played with the sort of advanced rules, advanced tech tiles, which in the case of Barrage, I would actually recommend not sticking in for your first games. Not really because mechanically the game is difficult. What is difficult in there is to work out how I do this well. So when you first play, it's kind of like, how do I make energy? And I've got to get water. And then you will sort of miss out little bits. Then there's a spatial aspect to the board 
because it's almost deliberately the pipes run all over the place. So water is held behind dams and then they have to be piped through a conduit to a power station, which invariably will be a weird diagonal way away. And from there, it will fall down to another dam. Once it's behind a dam that's not neutral, it is controlled by that player. It's the only time water is controlled by one player. And you don't necessarily have to have your own conduits between these places, but it does have to be your own power station and it has to be your own dam, unless it's one of the neutral dams, which we'll come back to. So I think for the first couple of games, that is a little bit too much, not to do, but to exploit well. Because within the game, there's five rounds. If you start off and on the first round, you run a bit of water, make a bit of electricity, the game goes, oh, well done, that was nice. Well, well you have a little bonus here, it has a couple of points. Next time you have to do it better. And the threshold for scoring points that round is a bit higher. And then you go, okay, you managed that. It probably won't on your first game, but you managed that. You managed to get 12. Okay, that's good. Next time you've got to do it a bit better. And you have to get better and better and better as you go. And that's what's super difficult. So I would leave the advanced tiles out for the first couple of games, but no longer than that, because they don't add that much. What they add is, if you know how to use them well, you're going to play well and score more points. So they reward good and experienced play. And that certainly came to the fore. Puria played with us. He's very good at the game and he played very well with the technology tiles. The other thing he did, which is a bit of a, a vet move, was he utilised the water from neutral dams very well and set himself up to be able to do that. And that made a lot of sense. And in the game, start low and then build up towards the top of the mountain is generally a good idea Adam was new. He said, I'll, I'll go at the top because I can capture water there and then I can do something with it. And yeah, yeah, you can. But that thing we put resources on the wheel and they get tied up for a while, it dawns on you after a little while, oh, those resources I've used to capture this water, I need them again to be able to build the thing. I need to be able to score points and they're stuck there. And then suddenly you go, well, that's okay. It's a worker placement space so I can move this wheel around and get my resources back. And you look at it and of course it's being filled up very quickly and you've run out of workers for this turn, and you're like, oh no, it doesn't quite work. And it always just doesn't quite work. For this game, I got really greedy. I was slowly setting myself up, building up, got myself in a position where I controlled loads of water for the last round. But then I was trying to unlock a special power and then use it to cascade, which I guess thematic, and sort of do a couple of real super moves. But I'm really stupid. And I allowed the worker placement area on the board where you actually run for water and pump. I didn't care if I got a lower down one because with all the multiplayers I had, I knew I could do what I wanted to do. Where you, When you make electricity, you can fulfill contracts to get bonuses, to chain off. And I had it all lined up and then the board ran out of space and I ran out of workers to take the more expensive places. And I shot myself in the foot a little bit and I didn't win. Puria did. He played really well. But that was... a real fabulous i really enjoyed that game and what i was super happy about was that thing i mentioned was that now that i know the game pretty well it's, it's quite an easy teach and yeah easy to play perhaps ish very difficult to master speaking of a very quick and easy teach certainly not the depth of barrage but watch is a game that i've been talking about over the last few months where you work in a soviet watch factory it used to be a munitions factory and you can either go very sort of straight down the line and make gears and stuff, or you can be sneaky and start stealing files on people and trying to sneak ammunition crates out. This all sounds very thematic. The theme is more within the clever use of timing and watching each other and the way that 
things tick around and the actions tick around and turn order is very important. It's played over 12 rounds, the very quick rounds, the very quick actions. And every round also you get to put things on majorities, which but weights scoring towards certain areas. So you can make these ammunition crates more valuable to you or the money you can make more valuable to you or the gears which you use to spend for things more valuable to you at the end of the game. I took a different track this time. I went for scoring my gears extra and collecting lots of gears and scoring with set collection of these cards. They're supposed to be files on people you get in their secrets. But what they are really are different color cards which have actions on, which help you out. And that worked out. That was cool. And I managed to win, but then I played it more than anyone else there. So it's not always a great accolade to do that. I'd like to point out the Puria of Barrage fame was an absolute jammy git and had no money and kept taking risky moves where he'd go to areas where he could get caught sneaking around and he didn't again and again. And it was ridiculous. And I was entirely unhappy with that. But thankfully, justice prevailed and I won anyway. So Watch continues to be a real solid, quick, thinky game where there are different paths. And when you teach it, people go, is that it? And then you play it, you go, oh, yeah. And then the more you play it, the more you go, oh, yeah, I am setting my own path here and I am thinking and timing matters and I'm interacting with the other players and it has all the elements of a nice game. It doesn't look very good and I think that if it had a components and art upgrade, it would get more attention due to the cleverness of that gameplay. We forged onwards from Watch and we all became pirates and we played Dead Reckoning. Hmm. Dead Reckoning was super popular. At the con, lots of people were playing it. Lots of people were talking about it. They played it beforehand, but at the con as well, it was getting played a fair bit. It's John D. Clare building on that mystic veil idea whereby you get cards, but they have spaces for upgrades and you can collect upgrades and you sleeve them in with the main card and it makes that card more powerful. So it's a deck builder with 12 cards. Although you've only got 12 cards, those cards can very much change in form and function. As well as that, in Dead Reckoning, you can upgrade those cards so they become better versions of themselves. In terms of what you're doing, the play area, you have a ship. Everyone has their own harbour in which you will produce goods, you'll produce barrels. And you have the ship, you actually have both a plastic ship that you can move around. Outside the harbour, there's a grid of three by four. There's four levels of a threat or ability. And then the ones near the harbour are lightly pedestrian and they're three wide. And also you have a ship setup in which during the course of the game you can spend to, as long as you upgrade one of your characters, you can spend to give yourself and sort of weight your ship in a certain direction, either make it faster or be able to hold more barrels to go around and buy stuff or put cannons on there or put a pirate flag on there so you're always going to be attacking people. And you can sort of influence the way you go just with a couple of icons here and there. I guess that specialising in the ship setup ran through a lot of my thoughts in the game about how much you can be a specialist within this game, how much you can try and be a specialist. As you move around, there are islands, or most of these cards are just an island, and you can sort of, if you've got a card that's the buccaneer symbol, because all these cards have symbols on, and it's the symbols to tell you what you can do on this turn. So you flip over your four cards, and you go, right, I've got a buccaneer symbol and a pirate symbol and a couple of cannons, maybe I'll go and attack. But this buccaneer symbol, it just allows you to put area majority cubes and islands if you control an island you've got another card called a purser which will produce barrels and coins on the on the island and you can collect them as long as you still control it barrels you'll use to pay for upgrades coins are basically points at the end of the game which will happen when someone has done a certain number of achievements and they are everything you can do in the game's achievement 
you can sink other players, you can uh, control islands, you can have 30 money, you can spend 12 barrels at once. There's all sorts of different stuff you can do. Once someone has a certain number of those, a bit like side, that will trigger the end game. And then everything you've done in the game scores, the upgrades on your ships, the upgrades on your cards, your island control, the coins you've collected, everything scores. The score sheet, in fact, would be about 20 rows long if you were to put it together. Although some of those you skip all the time. Um, I've mentioned sinking ships there. There are merchant ships that come up which you can purchase with barrels, like on the island. So when you visit an island, it's got one card on it, one upgrade, one see-through card. And you can purchase them as merchant ships or you can attack them if you've got cannons. Or under certain circumstances, you can attack other players. Now, when you attack the merchant ship, you don't know how strong they're going to be. You flip it over and it tells you how many cubes it has. And that's how many cubes are going to go into a cube tower. And the number of cannons you have, plus any special powers you have from upgrades, tells you how many cubes you put into a cube tower. And you drop them in, and all the cubes are going to come out of this cube tower, but they're going to land within this tray. And within the tray, there are different areas. And there's areas for you just get barrels and, and or coins, just cubes falling in there. There are areas in which you're going to damage the other ship, which doesn't matter against a merchant ship, but matters against players because too much damage in the ship will sink. And then there's a sort of like victory points for the battle. It's actually the most victory points for the battle that your cubes land in, which wins you the fight. So you could take loads of damage, but actually somehow win the fight. It is a thing. <laughs> okay. If you win or lose against a merchant ship, you might, if you win, you might get it as an upgrade. If you lose, it can cause you damage, but generally you'll get something good anyway. If you sink, all you basically do is lose five coins. You lose five points out of a score, which is going to be way, way up. Like If you fight against someone else, let's say someone came to attack you. Now, there's, there's two different times this happened. I had gunners in my hand, in my deck, and they're the ones you can upgrade to have cannons. And I upgraded them as much as I could. So I had two souped-up gunners. Now, over the course of many hours, you don't get that many turns. I reckon we had between 15 and 20 turns. So you don't get endless chances to upgrade and promote your characters and put things in. So at one point, Adam decided to attack me. And I said, okay, I have my gunners in my hand. So he attacked me and I put it down. And I had a ton of cubes and I was wicked and... I sank him, and I actually got an in-game achievement for that, for sanking another player, and he lost five points, and I scored whatever, and that's cool. The next time someone comes to attack me, I didn't have those guns in my hand, and there's no control I had over that, so I took a load of damage. That doesn't feel very satisfying. It doesn't feel very thematic either. Like, I've made my crew. I've done everything I can, in fact, to soup up my crew for cannons, but I happen to have the purser and the captain and whatever, whatever in my hand, just a normal crewmate. Which did, which weren't the other cards I'd souped up, just from shuffling a random chance. So, when I leave harbour, and there's going to be a fight, and someone attacking me. So obviously, if I choose to attack, I can see how strong I am. If someone attacks me, I have little control over how strong I am. It just, I feel it a bit frustrating, to be honest. Stuff like that, waiting to get certain combos of cards in your hand, and the downtime. And we play four player, which isn't recommended, and personally isn't recommended. A lot of downtime. We were playing a fiddly Euro in terms of scoring and sort of like area control, plus everything scores a bit like a field. And it seemed like a lot of effort for the amount of chaos that was in the game and the amount of, or random, I guess, whereby well, I, I don't know what, yeah, am I going to get my super cards out or my rubbish cards out? What my opportunity is going to be? Felt a bit annoying because you get restricted in movement because you set sails at one point. And then if you sail out the harbour and you collect a load of stuff, 
You've got to put them in the same areas as your sails or your guns might be. So you're cancelling powers. And the only permanent powers you have are on your ship. But you're having to cancel them if you collect stuff. I think there's a way you can specialise. And you can say, look, what I'm going to do is have a massive cargo hold and chug around and slowly collect these goods and I'm going to go back to harbour and push them in. And I don't know what you do with them at that point. Or I'm going to have loads of cannons and I'm just going to swing around the place shooting things. But then I still have to collect things in order to score points. I don't know. Am I sounding confused? I am confused. Because everyone told me they loved it. So many people grew up saying, oh, they reckon I had so much fun with it. It was great. It was this. It was that. I was thinking a lot. And I was trying to pull together these different mechanisms. And I was, the decision of what card upgrade felt tricky. But when I think back on it, it was tricky because I had no idea what was going to be any good. It was so situational as to what cards came out together and when they came out together. Like there's a thing with, with ship's wheels, the ship's wheels that can appear on cards and you can put on cards and they don't do anything themselves, but they combo in. This might be a beginner move, right? So I just chucked some ship's wheels on my captain saying, well, great, hopefully a, car, a power will come up that will combo off those ship wheels. It did, but the only one that came up was on the bottom upgrade where I'd already upgraded the captain. So I didn't really want to do it. And I was like, well, I'll wait for the next one to come up. But there's not enough turns in the game. Turns are slow. And it takes a while to go around the table. And then when people take a turn, there's a lot of fiddly farting around because there's lots and lots of symbols once you get going. So the game slows down as you go through the game as well. So there's not that sense of pace that I wanted. And I was unsatisfied with the play. Now, I've moaned a lot about it there. It's beautiful looking. There's plenty going on. It's not dumbed down. You're doing a lot of thinking. I played really badly, which will affect your thoughts in the game anyway. And I... I guess one of my issues that was that an hour and a half into a three and a half hour game, I knew that I hadn't specialised very well and I hadn't had a clear direction where I was going. And that always feels painful. So what I want to do is play it again, have more of an idea how I'd specialise what I was doing, have more of a clear idea about how I was going to score points and then see how much the random factor affected me. Because if I'm playing with clarity, but it's still hitting me at times that I feel like I really have no control about how strong I am when this is going on, then I think I've got a real problem with the game. Right now, despite my moans, I haven't been positive about the positives with the game. Mostly I think it's a reaction because I think I was the most negative about the game at the whole court because lots of people were saying how great it was. So I I felt like I was forced a little bit into devil's advocate to say, well, at one point, two points in fact, I sat there and I was miserable enough to just keep an eye on my, my phone and it was 15 minutes between my turns, twice in the game. And 11, 12 minutes was standard. And I don't think the other players were playing particularly slowly. It's just that there's a lot of fiddly... I'm turning over these cards and now suddenly I've got 11 symbols. And I can move a bit and do a bit of this and oh, I don't know, oh, I, oh, I can't go there because that one's got a building, so that's hard to attack. So if I come back here and then if I go here, oh yeah, but those barrels, but if, then they'll need those barrels because they'll be in the way because I need that sail. And, and there was a lot of that going on. And I, I say I don't blame the players, it's just that the whole system feels overburdened by an amount of mechanisms too many, an amount which I am yet to define. So I've been... Rambling on about that because my thoughts were quite rambled and scrambled about Dead Reckoning. Want to play it again. Not sure I'll ever get the chance to. Don't love it at the moment. There we go. Went out for dinner, came back. There was a a raffle sort of a thing going on. (laughs) So in order 
to uh, to sit in that area and allow people to see what was going on. We just played a quick game of Rumble Nation. Unfortunately, a couple of players were distracted by everything that was going on around them. So really, only Rachel and I were concentrating, and Rachel and I had a really close game of Rumble Nation. <laughs> I beat her by two points. And it's a great game, but possibly that wasn't the best play of it that anyone's ever had. Following on from that, we played Beyond the Sun, which was my first game of it. Sean's played it a few times, and it's definitely one of those he's been bouncing around thinking about reviewing. So you might get a full review of Beyond the Sun. So I don't know that I'm going to go into it too much, but it's not slated for review yet, so I will go into it a little bit. I will say that, I mean, it was a tech tree, the game. It's a sci-fi game in which you are managing more or less two resources, people and all, but people can become ships and people can become technologies. And you are choosing what action to kick off each turn the actions start very basic but you can give yourself access to more complicated more powerful actions basically by building up a tech tree and give yourself presence on the technology which will allow you then to use it in future also there's an exploration board in which you're doing a very simple sort of sending ships around in an area majority thing whereby if you have majority of an area it allows you to make your production better in one of the two resources and eventually you can sort of terraform it and put it across and permanently make your production better and maybe get some powers and maybe score some points for doing that. The technology tree ramps up. It goes through four different levels. When you're getting up towards the fourth level, you're really getting towards the end game and it goes along four branches of uh, commercial, military, science and another one, which I can't remember. It was green. Beyond the Sun, to me, is set up and designed well and produced well and it's a good first play because you can start playing and it's gradual and nothing's too set in stone so very early on the exploration board was completely dominated by one player i was a bit like oh well we're never going to get in there then but actually via the very nature of them taking cards off the board and terraforming it removed some of their presence and it opened up and you could get on it again so nothing was permanent and i started going down sort of my own science branch down the bottom of this tech tree because the first person to get one gets a couple of choices of what the next power will be. So you're shaping what actions are available. And I sort of made it so that I only needed to produce one of the two resources, really, which was all. And I could use that to produce people and, and do everything that I wanted to do. And that was all groovy, but I realised I probably needed a bit of military presence and I hadn't gone down military. But I wasn't stuck because it was only a couple of actions to get a foothold up on the military and then be able to use them a little bit. And there was enough options on the board that I could find ones that fit to some degree into what my plan already was. So I liked the fact that I never felt stuck. I could adapt. I could change. It might knock me back a round or two in order to sort of realise, oh, I need a bit of this now. But it was open and I could do it. And that was a cool thing. And it was understandable. And I felt like I was making real decisions. And it was clear how I was scoring points. It was clear. Actually, it wasn't clear but because we were stupid. But it is clear how the game ends. And it doesn't go on too long. And you're not constantly chasing. It's not a massively long game. And you're not sort of grinding to a victory. It's actually quite a quick race to a victory. Or to at least trigger the end game. I felt like I'd gone down lots of different routes like trying different things out like I usually do I kind of guess what went wrong in Dead Reckoning on the first play of a game I often will, I'll try a bit of this I'll try a bit of that I'll try a bit of this just to see what they will do so I'll get my head around oh that's that that's that is it and usually end up right with not scoring very well Dead Reckoning I should specialise and beyond the sun I actually won just about I keep telling you the games I won I lost a lot of games <laughs> I keep saying all these games I won I lost a lot but 
I won it and it was a surprise to me because I didn't get any endgame achievements and I hadn't done anything spectacularly, but by doing a bit of everything and by being, I guess, in some way efficient with my sort of one resource thing, it was enough. And that was interesting as well. The danger of a game being a really good first play and clear and open like that is, will it be samey? There are lots of different tech cards, so there will be slightly different techs coming out all the time. But if they're all slight variations on the same system, there's the possibility that they won't feel varied enough. That's to come down the line. For now, I can say I thoroughly enjoyed my first play of Beyond the Sun. And I've asked Sean to bring it down again so I can get it played again soon and really start to get my teeth into it to get a firm opinion. So hopefully a full review of Beyond the Sun sometime in the coming months. By this stage, it was getting late. We didn't really fancy playing anything too serious, so we cracked out a couple of shorter games for five of us, and we played a couple of rounds off Oriflam. Oriflam is the game where you represent a house. It's not Game of Thrones themed, to be very clear, it's not Game of Thrones themed. It's nothing to do with Game of Thrones. It might be lame of bones, but it's not Game of Thrones. It's definitely not, but it is. Anyway, you control a house, you've got 10 character cards, you throw three away, you've got seven random ones from 10, you're going to play one face down onto like a queue of cards each turn and then decide whether to flip it over or not. And these 10 cards have 10 different powers. And a lot of the powers are just to assassinate other cards in the line or not to. Because if you assassinate something, you score points. But if it's face up and left alive, you might score points. You might score points for being next to ones of the same, your own colours. There's ways to manipulate the, the card order to get cards grouped together. But then that can be a problem because you can have a soldier next to your cards who'll start attacking each one adjacent to it. So each round it starts eating through what you've set up to do. Might, might sound grandiose, it's very quick, it's slipping over cards, it's being funny, it's making decisions that end up being dickery. It's There's a card that's ambushed, someone attacks that one, you score more points. There's one called Spirit Conspiracy, which if they don't attack it, you score more points. Trying to work out what other people are doing, but it's funny and it's quick and it's abusive. And actually, it's a bit better than I always remember it to be. It kind of fades in my mind and I'm like, oh, Oriflam, yeah, yeah. I haven't played it for a while, dragged it out, threw it in my bag to be sort of this. And we had a good time, really good time. So Oriflam was lots of fun, mostly, I would say, due to the players as well. On top of that, I have to correct an egregious error. The last game we played on Saturday night was No Thanks. Fantastic game in which there's a bunch of cards, 1 to 35, 9 of them get thrown out of the game, and then you flip one over, and then everyone has a handful of tokens, and on your turn you either have to take the card on offer with all the tokens on it, or put one token on it to say no thanks. And the tokens build up on the worst cards. The problem is, if you take a card, it's worth minus points to you, but the tokens you get on it are the plus points. You're supposed to, in a five-player game, have 11 tokens each. We only had 10 because apparently we've lost a couple of tokens. That caused great consternation. It's fine, it's fine. We do need to get a new copy of No Thanks. It's been all around the world and we've played it too many times. It's hilarious and it's brilliant and it's funny teaching it to players who have never played it because I have this opinion that everyone has not played No Thanks, but it's just for my little bubble, right? Everyone around me, when I started gaming, knew I had to play No Thanks. That doesn't mean the whole world. Nice to have that pop sometimes. But the egregious error is that No Thanks was not in my top 100. On further plays, I like Cartographers. It's a very good game, but I'm going to drop it out of my number 100 spot and I'm going to put No Thanks in there. There's the first revision of 100 and we've barely got going. So pretend No Thanks was on there or splice this bit in there or something like that. Jolly good. Ready to go to bed. Had a few drinks, chilling out, very late. And John from Actual LOL nabbed me. I said, come and play MTV from Big Potato. I said, oh, okay, cool. What is it? It's a music sort of party game. 
in which there's loads of cards, different categories, like the 90s, one-hit wonders, the 2000s, I don't know, lots of different ones. And as a team, you're trying to collect cards of all the different categories. The way to do that is each round, there's a head-to-head in which there's one from either team, flip over a card and say, name songs with such and such in the title, type of weather, body part, the word she, whatever it might be. And then you think of one and you press the browser and say it, and then the other person's got 15 seconds to respond, and then you've got 15 seconds to respond. It goes backwards and forwards until someone can't do it. Surprisingly difficult. Easy now, I'm sitting here. Difficult there. Maybe after lots of drinks, your cognitive function might be slightly impaired. Whoever wins it gets to choose the categories for their team, and then they choose three from six. And then you, the same person from their head decides which card goes in perform, which goes in one word, which goes in lyrics. And you've got 30 seconds to try and get your team to guess what's on these three cards. And lyrics is you just start saying lyrics of a, the song that you've put there or the song by an artist. So um, whatever it might be, Raspberry Beret. And if it wasn't, whatever. Prince, got it, good. And then when you do one word, you can only think of one word. Like one of mine was Led Zeppelin. I said immigrant. Archie got Led Zeppelin straight away. Brilliant. And the last one is Perform. There's kazoos in there, which you can use, which were used. Or you can scat, or I think you can hum. And you're just trying to do the tune, and they're trying to get it. So you're trying to do all three in 30 seconds. Collect the categories. I spent way too long on the rules. It was funny, because we made it funny. People were dropping jokes over time. There was abuse going around. There was applause for particularly good kazoo performances. All the rest of that. It did its job. I had a good fun. I was laughing. It was late at night. What more do you want it for? As a game, is it any good? Nah, not really. As a social interaction, yeah, it was tons of fun. Okay, we get to Sunday. I did mention I was coming back to night shift Monday, so we got a lie-in on Sunday, chilled out, tried to get some sleep, knowing that I'm going to go into that shift. We got up and we made our way into town and we went for a bit of lunch and we just brought Sprawlopolis with us. So as well as Circle of Wagons, we played the co-op version of Sprawlopolis. It's great. We had the goals off. If you play the game, if you haven't, sorry, but quickly have parks, three parks in each row in each column, punish for having industry grey spaces on show. And you have to have the one you know, the one with the blocks where you've got to have blocks of four of the same together. If you don't have a certain number of them, you lose points. But if you do, you gain points. Very low target number of nine. And we did it twice and we did it twice, just about, which is great. And it was fun. And we're just chatting and we're waiting for our food to come. Just rage to the night and sprawl off with this is fabulous. We got back and we fulfilled a promise because you may remember, and Sean mentioned it a lot, that Yido is one of the first games we ever, ever, ever reviewed. It is one of my favourite games. It is a auction, resource collection, menu fulfilment, mission fulfilment, menu fulfilment, worker placement game with a ton of interaction. It's very tight on its spots in which you're having to plan ahead but also adapt all the time. You are reading the other players. It's very tight for money. It's fabulous. Hadn't played it for a few years. Sean bought me the Deluxe Master Set for Christmas because he's lovely. And I had promised Vicar that we would get this played and at two o'clock on Sunday. Lo and behold, we got together. Nathan of So Clover fame was with us and... I taught him. I think it was pretty okay to teach. I had refreshed on the rules. It's a brilliant game. So I don't really need to say anything more than that. I could talk about the master set itself is quite something. It looks lovely. And everyone will tell you it looks lovely. And people walking past were like, wow, what's that? The pieces are fantastic. It 
has so much variety in there. Every deck of cards in the game, and you get events that happen, which happen each round. You get missions, which you've got to fulfill to score the majority of your points. You get uh, bonus cards, in-game scoring. You get action cards that let you do stuff. They all now have various modules you can drop in and out. And they have a recommended setup. And I read it the night before when I was staying up. And I went, wow, they've just kept all the blandest cards. I kind of understand it because you know the old version, the cards would come out and you had no control whether it would be like the real nasty cards or the okay cards and new players would get screwed and people would blow their top. I did get rid of a few cards out of the original Yida to say that's just too dicky. That it comes out the wrong time. It's too mean and stuff like that. And I love a dicky game. In this, they've said, look, to start with, play a nice bland game, which is okay. But the secret to Yido's success is it's not a bland game. It's a mean, tight, nasty game in which if you're not going, oh, no, oh, I forgot this. Oh, how did that happen? Then it's not really fulfilling its potential. And you have to have a bit of stress and you have to have a bit of, oh, I've run out of money. What am I going to do? And, oh, I've just thrown that weapon away, but now I need it for these missions I forgot. And that has to be in it. Otherwise, you're missing the magic. So the, the recommended setup is a bit bland, not having played it, but knowing the game very, very well. I read those cards and went, mm. So I mixed it up, but I was on the fly. I didn't have loads of time and I chucked some stuff in. And then because Nathan's first game, I didn't put the real nasty cards in the hard interaction and stuff. And we played, and what I can say is that they've taken the game from 11 rounds to 8 rounds, which definitely makes it shorter, which I wasn't sure about, but having done it, actually they've done the arc very well because money drives everything. It gets you going, it gets your resources, it gets you in the auction, it gets you your, your extra workers, your annexes you need for certain powers and, and for missions and the weapons you need to fulfill missions, and you can get going. So it gives you money, but it gives you a limited number of money-generating missions and it that accelerates it to knock an hour or two of the playtime without actually ruining anything because it gets you to the interesting part of the game quicker so i like what they did that in the tweak of the missions and i like that it's only eight rounds long in the end and i think they've done very well what i need to do now and it's literally sitting on the table next to me is for myself i need to go through those decks and i'm going to curate and sort of create what I think are the best combos of action cards and bonus cards and missions to make it the most fun. Oh, the other thing is that there's, there's a kill the Shogun mission in the game, which was like an instant loads of points and stop the game. They've put 10 in now because you used to be able to know what was on that card and you could try and build towards it and fish for it. And they've they've taken that out, which again is a clever move. If this is a very well judged, designed, tweaked, we've got this game, which is very good, and we've made it even better. So it's a fantastic product. It's an overwhelming product. As well as all these options I'm talking about for the base game, there are other modules and there are bits that only work with those modules and there's specialist workers and there's Jesuits that tell you what to do and there's all this different stuff and it's incredible. The Tag Deluxe Master Set is very much appropriate. You're going to get the most out of this box if either you know the game of Yido or you're going to say, I'm going to play this a lot. And we're going to really get into this and we're going to get and make it into the game that suits our group best. Or I know it well enough that if the group changes a bit, like I might set these decks up and then we might play with people and I'm like, you don't enjoy that hard interaction so much. So I'm going to take a few of these cards out, maybe shuffle them around, put the nicer events that gives us a bit of money in and move on from there. Yeah, this really is going to reward investment of time and effort. But what a product. It is amazing.
and I'm kind of overwhelmed by how much you do I have there. <laughs> and I am going to be asking people to play again and again. And I want to play with these sets. And I want to see what I've done with them. And I want to find out the expansions. And it's just reignited what a fabulous, fabulous game Edo is. You play it. It's great. Okay. The next game that we played, and it's uh, we've played it a few times recently, is Paint the Roses. Co-op from Osprey, which is a tile layer, and you're putting down tiles which have relationships to tiles around it, a bit like Cryptid, and, and you're putting down cubes to show how many relationships your clue has, and no one else can see what your clue is. And it's not, it hasn't got the depth of Cryptid, this is just sort of like a, a it's hard to explain. The reason I'm sort of stumbling is we're doing a full review <laughs> in a couple of episodes' time, so I don't want to go into it too much. I'll say that it's a gorgeous production, it warranted a lot of attention, it looks lovely. This game was, it's a co-op, it was a bit tenser than I expected. It was quite hard. We were quite like, I'm surprised how hard it is to play very well at it. I feel like I need to play it a few more times, perhaps so I can teach it a bit better. I think I might rush to teach a little bit. And it didn't, you know, it took a little while to get into it. We fluked to win. It was literally on the last guess. We were down to something like a 50-50 and we got it. Otherwise, the queen was going to cut our heads off. Nice to get that. Nice to do it. There's lots to it. And we're still playing the base version. From that base version, there's also modules which allow you to sort of manipulate things and give you other win conditions than just filling up the board, which I think will make it even better. So maybe one or two more games of the base, then start trying some modules. And then when we do all the full review in a couple of weeks, I'll give you a full rundown of Paint the Roses. We're getting towards the end of the con now, but we have got four games left for you. One I'll go through quickly. Calico, you know I love it. Standard teaching game at cons. We always seem to teach it. People always end up loving it. Still cursing when I play it. Still thinking I'm an idiot. Still going for grandiose plans and not quite pulling them off. And a very tight game between myself, Rachel, and Imelda, a new player. I think we all had fun. Calico's brilliant. Just play it. Okay. June Imperium. I got the Rise of Its expansion. And all weekend, I was seeing people and... People were talking about playing June Imperium, either with or without the expansion. And I was itching, itching, itching for a game of it. And Sunday evening, it fell into place. Puria, who's a June Imperium fan, Rachel and myself, and then we were looking for someone else, and we got hold of Tom, and we threw it down. And my, oh my. What does Rise of X do to June Imperium? You know I like June Imperium already, or you do if you listen. You know I think it's a very good game. It was like... My number six or seven of that year that I had just above Arnak, which is always going to get referred back to, isn't it? Because they came out together and had sort of similar mechanisms. What does Rise of X do to a very good worker placement, deck building, conflict game, which had different systems within it? It takes the resource system. Now, it doesn't do much with the water. The spice and the money... Spice was always important. It gives you more options for things to do with spice. Specifically, you can buy textiles. Well, that's one thing you can do, which I'll come back to in a second, but also various other things. What it does with money is it gives you uses for money. But what it does all around is it takes away the simple selling spice for money as an action, replace it with a whole different system, but provides other routes whereby you can always get hold of something but via one or two moves so that you feel like you're making choices as to what to do with your resources rather than simply 
collect spice, sell it for loads of money, buy that. So, you know, it's instead of just becoming a very simple triangular system, it's now got branches, it's got loops, and it's got shortcuts, and you're having to think, okay, I always said about Dune Imperium that people start playing and they see money as a resource, and a standard thing is, if I get loads of money, I can do stuff with it. And in the base game, quite often you can't do lots of stuff with money. It's not the thing to chase. You're having to chase how to win. That is still true, but now there's much more things you can do with money. And it does work. And I think they've really improved on that. Doesn't mean you have to chase it. Doesn't mean it's a winning strategy to chase it. But it's now an option. And what Rise of X has done has given you options. And with your spice, there's a couple of different things I can do here. And with my workers, there's slightly more choice in what I can do. And I like that. I mentioned tech tiles. Tech tiles are one of the new things in which you can use your, your green ability to place down workers to go and buy tiles and they can give you sort of an every round power or a once a round power or an end game power. What they add, along with the new sort of symbol, the symbol is called a freighter action and there's a very short track of three spaces. And for a freight action, you can either move up the track or you can take all the rewards that you're at or above. So you can sort of build up these moves and at the right time, take money, play down troops, get a tactile. Also, there's a new unit, which I can't remember the name. It's Dreadnought. We were calling it War Willies because that's what they look like. They're like Jeff Bezos' rocket. I don't know why they look like that. But there you go. Um, what the tactiles do, what the freighter moves do, and what the Dreadnoughts do is add a tiny bit of permanence to what you're doing because almost everything in Dune Imperium was ephemeral it was is it good now is it good now my troops go in and they're dead dreadnoughts now go in if they win they let you control an area but if you, they lose they come back into your garrison the tech tiles all of your cards you pay them down they do what they do and they're gone and they may or may not come out in the right order next time and you don't go through your deck that often and it's hard to get very very good card combos within your deck the deck building is odd in Dune Imperium the tech tiles now these will trigger and you know they're going to trigger. And it gives you a little bit of, okay, I've got a little bit of shape on this. I've got a little bit of what I am doing and how I'm doing it and how I'm working my route through. I got one of the new houses that gives you the signet power is using money. And also every time you get money, you get one extra money. So I bought a tech that gave me money. And then I used all the spaces and the I bought cards that money to get spice or money to do this or money to put troops into the combat so I was building up my little thing now that might sound obvious but it was actually something that was a little bit lacking in the first one as very good a game as it was that ability to say right this is my route and I'm building this up and I've got a little tiny bit of an engine going Rise of X takes a very good game and makes it a brilliant game and I loved this play and that little bit tiny extra layer of thought and planning just takes a game that I really liked into being top, top notch. A really fantastic expansion. I would always recommend playing the base game with it. It doesn't add that much to it. If you can understand June Imperium, you can understand Rise of X on top. And if you have got June Imperium and you like it, I would fully recommend getting Rise of X. This was a big, big hit for me. I'm going to go to two different tar layers that create patterns. One is Azul Queen's Garden, the fourth Azul game on the massively popular back of Azul itself. It got played a lot at LobsterCon and it got a very mixed reception. That might be all I give you because we're reviewing it in two episodes of time. 
and I have thoughts. But the one thing I will tell you is, and I'm sure Noel remembers this, when the first 10 times I taught Azul, I taught it harder than it actually is. I taught that on the left-hand side with your gather tiles, you can never have more than one row of the same colour of tiles. It was like Azul hardcore. I tried quite light. It made it a lot meaner. I've been teaching Azul Queen's Garden. I've only taught it a couple of times. I taught it wrong. <laughs> I do blame the rule book. When you put something into your garden here, it's about collecting tiles and put them into a garden to make patterns, as you'd expect with an Azul game. When you pay for something and they've got various prices between one and six, you must pay other tiles for them. They count as one for themselves. So it's say I'm playing a level four tile in and I have to pay four tiles. It says discard four tiles to pay for this. Put your discards inside the, the tower. Okay. Oh no, the tile you're playing counts as one of the four and actually goes in your garden. I need to have read the example more clearly because the, what the rule says, says you discard four to play it. But you read the example, it says it counts as itself, you discard three more. Yeah. So I've been playing hardcore Queen's Garden. It's quite tight in the amount of tiles you can play anyway. So it's going to change it a bit. I'm not convinced it's going to change it massively. It will mean you score more points and things open up a little bit. I was told off. We do need to adjust that. I will get some more plays in with the real rules before we do the review. Like I say, very mixed reception. I'm not sure it warrants some of the vitriol that was headed its way that I heard. We'll get there. Finally, I reviewed Framework recently and I discovered it was based on Nova Luna and was actually called a re-implementation of Nova Luna. And we talked about why. And I said, I've got Nova Luna. I'm going to go and play it. Well, I did. And I played it three times. Both of the games, both have Uwe Rosenberg's name on the box. You are going to take tiles from a selection. In Framework, there is number of players plus one drawn from a bag and you're going to select one. In Nova Luna, there's a circle of tiles. There's 11 of them laid out and very akin to Patchwork. You can take from the next three tiles. They have time costs on them and your double will move along the time track a certain distance. And if you are still behind the other player, you get to go again, or the other players, you get to go again. If... You're not, whoever's highmost now gets to choose from next three and you're moving the thing around this circle of 11 and they choose from next three, next three, akin to patchwork. When there's only two tiles left, you refill around there. It's always, and it's always back up to 11 again and that's where you're choosing from. So not as wide, you can't see all the tiles you can patchwork, you can't plan right the way ahead. In framework, you're building up areas, big areas. You're building up six and nine and 12 of a colour and then throwing goals on the side and scoring two or three goals at the same time. In Nova Luna, the goals are much more interwoven. The maximum you're ever looking for is four of one colour of tile altogether. And quite often the goals require two, three or four different colours to be all around the tile that has got the goal on. So it's all about creating a patchwork, <laughs> bad word to use, patchwork of tiles of different colours but getting them in the right configuration to what the goals are on those same tiles. And it's very much more intertwining the colours and putting them at the right point to trigger off each other. Whereas in framework, like I say, you're creating bigger areas and then looking to get the tiles to score off those big areas you've created. Novaloon is much tighter, but not in the draft. You have more choice in the draft, but it still feels much more brain achier and harder and a lot more, oh no, I can always feel like in framework, I'll take one, 
I could kind of make something out of it. And Nova Luna, I'm like, I don't know. How am I going to do this? If I take that light blue, it wants yellow, it's been yellow, yellow, and I put a yellow in, then that wants a red and yellow combo, and I've got to make a corner to fit one in there. And, and you know, you constantly did I will say that Framework is the Cascadia, or Nova Luna is the Calico. Similarities, Nova Luna is for the people that want to feel like, oh, this is a framework. It's more for cool. I'll always be able to do something. I am thinking, I am being clever, but I can always do something kind of useful. Neither of them are as extreme. So framework is thinkier than Cascadia, which I think is too bland. And Nova Luna is not as tense as, as Calico, but it's quite tense within itself. I've kept them both for now because I kind of somehow got in my head that they're different games for different groups. What is probably going to be the death knell for framework is that it's really boring looking. So where that would be in gameplay wise, the game I would get out for lighter gaming groups and people who just want a casual game and a throw down. It looks so boring that I think I'm going to put people off if I get that game out. Whereas Nova Luna, I don't think it looks fantastic, but it's too thinky for a casual gaming night. Like, yeah, your mates came over and you had a bit of dinner, another couple or whatever, and then, like, should we play a game? Framework, you could get out gameplay-wise, and they'd have fun. Nova Luna, they'd be like, what are you doing to me? Why do you hate my brain? I'm like, I can accept that. I actually think Calico's more player-friendly for that because you can always do stuff and you can see you're advancing towards something, maybe badly. But Nova Luna, you really feel like, oh, God, I'm making an error here. Oh, Yeah. I hope that made some kind of sense. Do I like it? Yeah, I do. I find it frustrating. I'm not fully convinced. I am going to get more plays. And then I have to decide whether that amount of ache is enough because this is on the back of a lot of game playing as well. So it felt maybe slightly too much brain achy, but it might be because of the newness. It might be because I played loads of games in a row. So there you go. That is what finished off our four days of gaming for LobsterCon 22. I hope you've enjoyed my recap of it. Thank you very much for joining me. As I said, Sean will be back in about 11, 12 days time with our 90 to 81 countdown. And after that, you're going to get reviews of some of the games that I mentioned there, but didn't go into in full depth. The Game Pit is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Head to dicetower.com for a whole ton of gaming content. If you want to join in the conversation, we are on Twitter almost every day and also our board game geek guild join the over 100 gamers there who basically like to abuse us for all the things we say that are stupid and by all means join in that abuse you're welcome to if you want to email us we are the game podcast at gmail.com thank you and we'll catch you next time on the game pit music by e Big old boy.